and welcome to Fraud Talk, the ACFE's monthly podcast. I'm Sarah Thompson, the Public Information Officer for the ACFE, and today I am joined by Dr. Vince Hacker, Assistant Special Agent in Charge in Western Region Investigations for the U.S. Department of the Interior, Office of the Inspector General. Thank you for joining us today, Vince. Oh, thank you for having me, Sarah, and for hosting these podcasts. It's a real pleasure being here. Great. Uh, before we dive in, I'd like to make the disclaimer that any references in this podcast to any person, organization, activities, products, or services related to such person or organization, or any mentions from this podcast to another party, do not constitute or imply the endorsement, recommendation, or favoring of the U.S. government, the DOIOIG, or any of its employees acting on its behalf. So now that we have the disclaimer over with, um, I was fortunate enough to attend your session at the ACFE's 32nd Annual Global Fraud Conference in June. In your session, you discussed a case involving contractors that were defrauding the government. While the case itself was really interesting, you brought up a number of really important points that I think can be applied to any type of fraud investigation. But to give some context to listeners though, could you briefly walk us through the normal process of how contractors are awarded bids with the government? Sure, it's uh, it's all by luck. No, I'm kidding. Um, no, so it, no, it really starts with like a need. The government has a need for a product or a service. Uh, the government determines how much is willing to pay for that product or service, and then they start doing market research. And then once they've kind of determined market market research and what that product or service should cost, they'll advertise it. And so contractors have an opportunity to review it um, and kind of develop their own bids. And then they'll submit a bid to the government. Um, the contractors are supposed to develop, you know, independent bids, you know, in their own little bubble and you know, based on their overhead and their cost. And then once they submit them, the government goes through and assesses. A bunch of different things, not just the price, right? That would be that would be kind of a, um, not the best way to award contracts, but it's based on price. So they look at some of the other viability. You know, is this contractor can they perform? Um, you know, are they close by? Are they across the United States? Um, you know, do they have a, a propensity to, to accomplish this kind of work? Do they have past performance where they've shown us successfully they can complete this kind of project? Um, or are we taking a big risk here and a gamble and going with somebody who's kind of new to the to the field? So, um, you know, after they do all that, after the contracting officer goes through and assesses the bids and their little packets that the contractor submitted, they try to figure out, you know, the lowest viable bidder. Uh, it's typically the contract goes with the lowest bidder, not the high, right? That's, that's obvious. Um, and then essentially, you know, the, the viable being the optimal word here, because it's really charged, the government's really charged with researching the contractor and the contractor's performance and their, their whole work experience just to make sure that it's going to be a good partnership because there's a lot of trust there. You know, we're, we're really trusting these independent government contractors to you know, provide and supply us with the things we need in the government to get our mission and in, in our, you know, to, to day-to-day operations to get our mission accomplished. So that's kind of contracting in a nutshell. Obviously, there's a lot of other nuances other than that, but that's kind of, uh, that's kind of the Cliff Notes version. Yeah. Uh, thank, thank you for giving us that context. Um, when you're talking about the viability in your session, you were talking a little bit about red flags that you saw had appeared in that initial bidding process that when you were investigating, it seemed like they should have raised alarms at that starting point. And you said that sometimes contracting agents didn't ask follow-up questions or probe deeper. And sometimes that could be due to lack of resources or time crunches if it's near the, the deadline for those contracts being awarded. Um, but you also brought up the issue of people not feeling like they could ask more questions, even if they should. What do you think are some of the factors that stop people from pushing back or asking questions in a situation where there could potentially be fraud? 
Sure. Okay. That was a, that was a big question. So <laughs> let me let me let me break it down. Um, I think at the core of it, like kindergarten rules apply, right? If it sounds too good to be true, then it probably is. And and unfortunately, um, you know, no one's out there trying to give the government the best deal possible. We're not trying to save the government money, um, and that's the kind of stuff that we're dealing with. Or we're trying to get uh, you know good viable vendors and these contractors. Their livelihood is to make a profit on these contracts. So. When it comes to like, you know, um, clarification, like, okay, uh, a red flag that you mentioned, like, so these contracting officers, like I mentioned, they do a great amount of research to determine like what this widget or this supply or the service is going to cost. And they have a pretty good baseline of what it's going to cost. When somebody comes in and they, and they significantly underbid the project, you know, we, we thought the project was going to cost $100,000 and somebody bids it at thirty five. Well, it kind of makes you wonder, like, did you not understand what the scope of work was? Did you not understand what we're trying to get here? Or did we really just botch this thing and, and totally overblow our assessment? Um, you know, did you not understand um, or are we way off? So those are kind of like, you know, some red flags that may cause us to probe. And, and I would say I'll use the word red flag kind of kind of loosely because red flag doesn't mean fraud, right? It just means like there's an anomaly here. It may need us. We may need to ask some other questions or, or dig a little deeper into it. And we have the human factor here, right? We have government contracting officers, they're human. And at any given time, they're literally drug juggling probably like 15 or 20 contracts on any given day at different stages of completion while trying to make their quotas and milestones throughout the fiscal year. So there's a lot going on. Um, you know, I would say most of the contracting officers I've dealt with in my career, they really kind of lack the resources to vet some of the tougher issues some of these kind of more obscure issues with vendors. And honestly, like simple checks with past performance or something like in the system of award management registration, they won't always answer those kind of questions. And so, you know, that's when I would, you know, okay, I'll hop up my soapbox here for a second. That's when they should contact investigators or auditors, you know, to help them assist with it because they're probably thinking something's off here. And, and within my tool set, I don't really have the ability to kind of dig a little deeper. Who can I ask? And, and that's where that first little, pushback comes along, like, do I want to reach out to somebody? Um, what does that say about me? What does that mean? But they know they need help. Um, I would say the biggest thing in my career that I've came across when it comes to contracting and grant officers, you know, people who are dealing with the government's money, um, they don't feel empowered to probe. They don't feel empowered to ask those, those questions of like, hey, did you understand? Like, you know, you significantly underbid this project or your, your proposals are really like way off our charts. Um, and so they they don't feel you know like they they can push they can, they can push back a little bit. I don't mean push back like it's a negative thing. Just like probe a little deeper and ask the question. So either they don't feel management is going to back them if they pose those kind of questions, or honestly, a lot of them they voice to me they're afraid of being sued. And, and my question's always been like afraid of being sued for what? They're like, well, you know, we're telling these we're asking questions of these contractors. I'm like, right, but that's your job. Like your job is to safeguard the government's money. So. I don't think that's going to, that, that lawsuit is ever going to see a lot of, in the light of tunnel because you're doing your job. I mean, so they have to feel empowered and knowing that like they can do their job effectively and management has to back them. And, and again, I'm not saying ask crazy questions, right? But I mean, like, hey, do you understand or are you sure or to get those assurances out of the vendor? Um, we have to make sure people, you know, feel that way. We have to make sure they feel empowered and comfortable doing that. Yeah. And that was one thing that you brought up in your session that I was in, that whole idea that we have to empower those people. And do you have any advice for fraud examiners or investigators for what they can do? Or if you are managing a team of people or have seniority over people, what can you do to make them feel empowered? Are, are there certain things to remind them of or check-ins or, or do you have any advice for that? 
Yeah, I think a lot of it's just, it's fostering a, a creative environment, right? I mean, because, you know, government contracting has been around forever, right? So, you know, we, we can't think we're going to take an old approach and, and put it towards this constantly evolving process of contracting and non-procurement. Um, so we have to be creative. We have to, you know, again, not become, you know, entire privatized or Sherlock Holmes, but we have to dig a little bit. And, and I think we have to, as managers, empower our staff to kind of look at things from a divergent lens, approach it from a different angle, and maybe we'll come out with a different, you know, outcome. Um, you know, I, again, my soapbox, right, of, of being in, in, in a creative environment, um, I have, you know, the very rare opportunity in this inspector general's office where i have an ig who really sparks creativity he really likes to empower us he wants us to be creative and think for you know think of out of the box for you know, divergent solutions to old systemic problems so that's great that coupled with we know that the government has a fiduciary responsibility like it's our job to protect the money like that's a great thing to pair together so you know we have to we have to be able to reward that you know we have to be able to encourage that and reward that and and also you know give our, our staff the the freedom of like not everything you do is going to come to fruition like it may fail but you have to try so i think you know i think we have to give them the give them the 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 space and grace to try new things and and not be worried about failure yeah that's fantastic and yeah just giving people, I feel like it's just putting your trust in them and letting them know that you trust them and trust their, their instincts, trust their, their professional skills. And I feel like that's very, very important for not just the anti-fraud field, but for all fields, just for, for bosses to, to let their people know that. Yeah. And, and I think when you, when you allow people to probe deeper, I think they gain a deeper um, understanding of, of an issue. They, they, they gain a deeper uh, intellectual or they you know, gain a deeper understanding of a, a policy or regulation or a process. I think that's, that's only going to benefit them and it'll benefit us you know, as their managers because now that we have a subject matter expert on our hands who's, who's really dove into this and, and kind of followed it to the end. So yeah, I think, you know, I mean, empowerment is one of those things where for some reason it, it becomes hard as managers. We want to we wanna tend to actively manage or micromanage, right? But I think you know, we typically have brought people on because they bring these diverse assets to our team. And then we don't utilize those diverse assets. We're like, we know you, we hired you because you have all these great tools, but don't use those here, right? Um, <laughs> so we, we have to trust people, like you said. Switching gears a little bit to something else that you talked about in your session, you talked about that when you're conducting an investigation, you love using open source information. And I know that there's a wealth of information on social media, on public, in public records, um, but you also said not to vet with blinders on. What do you mean by that phrase? Yeah, I mean, open source information is great. It's a great resource, right? I mean, it's, it's accessible from our phones, from our tablets, from our work computers, um, and it's, it kind of gives us um, you know, kind of a glimpse inside. Now we have to remember, I mean, social media is not official, right? So it's not, you know, vetted and verifiable. But what I will say is like social media gives us a glimpse into things that maybe our official databases don't. Like my official databases are great when telling me like, you know, what power company they use and their driver's license, right? But it doesn't tell me like their hobbies or their girlfriend's name, how many kids they have, maybe how many fur babies they have. The last time they checked in someplace to go, you know, a picture at some monument. That's the kind of stuff that those other databases won't give us. Um, I love some of the public available databases, like, you know, the Secretary of State, looking at corporate registrations, public lawsuits have a ton of information in there. I mean, if this company has been sued or the person's being sued, like for what, what happened? You know, we're we talking about a simple, uh, you know, issue. 
uh, Redfin or Zillow, looking at where somebody lives and if they sold a house or they bought a house recently. Um, Google's an amazing thing, right? I mean, Google's just an amazing tool to kind of go, let's, let's, let's see where this goes. But I think, you know, just getting creative. I mean, it's being creative and looking at different ways to do it. Um, regarding vetting with blinders on, you know, I think it's really, it's really easy as investigators and as auditors to kind of fall victim from like, following a lead to the end of the earth. Like we are, we are moles, right? We are, we're going to ferret out the fraud. Um, and so we're like moles in this tunnel and we're just digging and digging, digging, looking for all this information. And most people who I know in this field who are investigators or auditors, we're very driven, right? We're data driven, we're resource oriented driven. And so we're going to follow that lead to the end of the earth. The problem is because we're so driven, we tend to like miss the rabbit hole that we just passed and we just missed a clue and we're you know passing up evidence because we're so laser focused on what we're trying to do. So I think my, my whole point about, you know, don't vet with blinders on is we need to remember to adjust our gaze up and look across the entire horizon and look at all the information we've amassed, all the evidence, you know, remain objectively, but to try to put that puzzle together. You know, I mean, I'm a puzzle person. And I think when we look at investigations and audits, that's what we're doing. We're trying to put those pieces together. We're trying to fit it all together and make this puzzle puzzle work. Um, and, and I said, you know, vet with blinders bomb, but also remaining objective. It's, it, we're human, right? I mean, so because we're human, we have empathy. And sometimes in our investigations and our audits, if they involve humans who've been victimized, um, we need to kind of remind ourselves to remain objective in those situations, right? It's really easy to be like, oh, that poor, that poor, you know, grandma lost her life savings because of this, the scheme, but we need to be able to, you know, pull ourselves back, remain objective. It could have been a clerical error, right? At the end of the day, as investigators and auditors, we don't really have a dog in the fight, right? We're fact finders. We're here to find the evidence. We're here to follow the money in hopes of finding out what happened and why. Um, and and kind of lastly, with the the data. I can only speak for myself and some of my, my close coworkers, but, you know, we constantly talk about analysis paralysis, like, because we're, we're data driven people. Right. And there's no such thing as too much data. We want it all. We want it now. Um, and so we can get really entrenched in the data and we can get almost bogged down in the mud too much, trying to analyze every minute detail. Um, so, you know, once again, we have to be able to keep our eyes on the horizon and ask ourselves, like, is this a viable, you know, data pit to pursue, you know, is this going to help my pursue my or, or advance my investigation? Is it going to help advance my audit? Um, so that's kind of what I meant with like the, the vet with blinders on and we tend to just get comfortable and we tend to, to forget to look up at the bigger picture. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Speaking not as an investigator, but someone who loves Excel spreadsheets and open source information. There are many times that I can definitely go down a rabbit hole with just looking at raw data or just finding out everything there is to know about someone or even like Wikipedia rabbit holes people talk about where oh you're goodness, just, yes. yeah, just looking at one topic and then that takes you to another and then another and another. Suddenly I'm reading about shipwrecks in 1700s <laughs> Ireland and I don't know how I got there. <laughs> it's dangerous. It can be dangerous. It can be, but I, but I think that's what makes us good at what we do, right? We really are, um, we're fact finders and we, and we love putting those puzzles together, but you're right. Um, we can, we can get lost in the data and we get entrenched in the data. Um, but I think that's why we do it. I think that's that's the fun part for us is it's the hunt. You know, it really is. It's hunting for those those clues that maybe other people passed up. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, moving on to a slightly different topic, another theme that was in your presentation that I heard was the importance of working and communicating with many different departments when conducting an investigation. And I think that we've all seen that in the past couple of years now with all switching to working remotely. You know, you're not able to have water cooler talk with people. You're not able to just pass someone in a hallway or maybe even just have a, a very short stand-up face-to-face meeting saying, oh, by the way, I needed to clue you in. We're working on this. We're going to need your help in the future. Not yet, nothing official, but just kind of wanted to put it on your radar. So can you talk in your role kind of, and in general, but why communication among different departments, especially with investigations, why that's so important for fraud examiners to foster? Sure. You know, I think the bulk of our fraud investigations, you know, they are multi-agency, multi-state, multi-jurisdictional. I mean, so communication becomes vital just to ensure that everyone knows where we are. Everyone knows what we're doing, what the goal is. And I think the biggest thing is to prevent prevent duplicity. There's nothing worse than like working on an area and spending all that tireless spreadsheets and pivot tables only to find out that it's already been tackled. You know, so I think that's a communication there, you know, is huge, it's vital. But also, I think especially in this current environment, like you mentioned, Sarah, the current environment, we're not doing that whole water cooler thing. So I think communicating and communication is huge because we can still share ideas, right? We can still have those, those virtual meetings and these telephone conversations. And I think when you're talking about, you know, working fraud investigations, no one person knows everything about fraud, right? I mean, we, we are very, very good at the one thing we know, and we know that very, very well. But, you know, fraud as a, as a term or fraud as a, as a scheme is so large, and there's so many moving pieces. So you have to constantly talk to other people and, and figure out, well, you know, how would you pursue this? Or what's another viable way to do this? Or how do we vet this part out? So um, this, the pandemic has, has definitely been a challenge, right? I mean, it's, um, you know, we've, we've all been kind of isolated for a long time. And like you said, we're not having those water cooler conversations. So I think we as an organization, we had to get, again, very creative on how we were conducting business internally, externally. Um, you know, COVID, COVID definitely changed a lot of that. Um, you know, we started doing kind of virtual check-ins and staff meetings and kind of, you know, the case meetings. But I find myself afterwards, like, like you know, being very intentional about writing emails afterwards, because no one wants to sit in a virtual meeting for like four to six hours and hash all this stuff out, you know, kind of, you know, okay, we summarize, we're going to do this, you know, you're, you're working on this stage, I'll work on that stage. And so I found myself doing that after a lot after these virtual meetings. And it, it's, it's tough, but I think it's forced us to kind of communicate differently, um, not better, not worse, just different. And I think... You know, over the past 19 months, you know, in audits and investigations, we began to hear a lot of this pandemic related fraud. And so it's great that we're hearing about it. But like, I'm not in contact with all the people I typically would be if I'm in the office amongst a thousand of my, you know, department coworkers. And so then it kind of was, you know, pushed on us, like, how do we get the word out? Like, I mean, we're, we're hearing real life fraud schemes with this pandemic, whether it's, you know, the personal protection gear, whether it's, you know, PPP loans, all these different things and facets, you know, with the pandemic and all the money. And not to mention, it's the largest amount of money we've seen at the government since the American Recovery Act. And that looked like a drop in the bucket compared to the CARES Act that just came out. So we really wanted to start reaching back out to contracting staff and grant administrators of saying, like, within our AORs, here's what we're seeing. Right, we you know we're seeing a propensity with this, whether it be counterfeit products, whether it be you know gouging, hoarding, those kind of things, and so 
we wanted to make sure that they knew we were still here. One, just because you don't see us in the office, like we're still here, we still work here, um, and we're here to help. Like again, going back to that soapbox, like we we have tools and resources as investigators and auditors that the field doesn't have. Like, reach out to me, let me know. But it fell back on us because we have to let them know when to reach out to us. Like, this is when you need to call me. So, what we kind of developed was like kind of doing some fraud awareness presentations and fraud awareness briefings to different groups of saying, hey, we'll do this virtually, you know, outreach efforts, you know, we did um, some some virtual awareness presentations, and we also did like a flyer, and the flyer had like, you know, just common fraud schemes we're seeing right now, we're seeing bid rigs again, we're seeing bribes again, product substitution, we're seeing the counterfeit, so be on the lookout, almost like a bolo, like a law enforcement, you know, be on the lookout for, you know, and if you see something, give me a call. Um, but it's hard because people got comfortable. They've all been home for 19 months and it's easy for just me to manage my computer. So we had to get creative and like I said, do the awareness briefings, put the flyers out and try some stuff. And, and I will tell you, doing virtual presentations when you can't see anybody, like is not for the faint hearted, right? You don't see people's reactions. You don't know if that, if that joke landed, are they getting the concepts that I'm trying to get across? Like it's crickets, right? So not for the faint hearted. Um, I think it's a great way to get the word out but it's definitely different, right? I mean, when you're presenting in front of people, you can kind of read the room and you kind of feed off the energy. When you're literally staring at your own slide deck and you're presenting and no one's chatting, no one's talking, nothing, you're like, I, is this thing on? I don't, I don't know if they can still hear me, right? I mean, we've all gone through that moment of panic. Um, I feel like you're bombing in these presentations, but I think, again, it goes back to like, we have to be creative in order, in order to make sure we're communicating effectively, you know, internally with our counterparts and our customers. So it's, yeah. Take, take, put the thinking cap back on and try to figure out some, some new ways to tackle an old problem. Yeah. Well, since you brought up fraud awareness, I have to plug that the ACFE's International Fraud Awareness Week is November 14th through the 20th this year. If anyone, any listeners listening to this want to sign up, you can sign up as an official supporter at fraudweek.com. And we have a bunch of awesome resources you can use to spread fraud awareness. This year, we are including... We made two new animated videos that are still in process right now, um, but we also have a PDF kind of fraud 101 primer that's written for non, non-experts for fraud, but for fraud experts to share with their colleagues and whatnot, and each page can be printed out as a standalone flyer too. So it's, it's very pretty and chock full of lots of information for everyone. But yeah, I mean, one of the reasons that we do the Fraud Awareness Week each year is because we've seen in our data that literally just raising awareness about fraud, it seems so simple, but that's such an important tool because people might not, they might be seeing fraud, but not know to call it fraud. They might not right. know that they're allowed to use that name for it, or they, they might just be like, it seems fishy, but... I don't know. I I don't even know who to talk to. And so that's awesome that you guys are doing those awareness within your organization to, to kind of say, hey, we're here, we're tools. If you have questions about anything, ask us. And just yeah. So exactly. And, and I'll be honest, we've we've learned things from talking to to CEOs, you know, and, and contract specialists are like, hey, have you ever seen this? Like, is this, is it, you know, you're, you're kind of like those hallway consults after a presentation, like, hey, can I talk to you? Like. Hey, does this look weird to you? And you can tell what they're doing. They're looking for like justification. Like, 
I'm seeing something here that's odd. Do you see it too? I mean, um, and, and I love doing those presentations because it does get people thinking about things that maybe they don't see every day, right? Um, you know, I, I think it's a very small percentage of people within government contracting that are trying to defraud the government. I think it's very small. Um, unfortunately, we as investigators and auditors, that's typically who we deal with the bulk of our time. Um, but, you know, in the field, they're dealing with a lot of people. And so every, every once in a while, they come to me and say, Have, does this look weird? Or, you know, they're looking for validation. And you're like, Let's, let's dive into it. Let's look into it a little further. So I've learned a lot from getting out there and putting myself out there because they'll bring very odd ideas to me or very, very, you know, anomal, anomical type things. I'm like, yeah, that is strange. Let me do some research and get back to you because I need to go become smart on this. So it's a, uh, it's, it's a, it's a give and take. It is. Yeah. Education, two-way street. Yes. With, with fraud stuff. Um, speaking though, or kind of piggybacking off of that, and going back to the power of asking follow-up questions and empowerment with that and stuff, you mentioned that like the importance of professional skepticism and really listening to your gut. And like you just were describing, if you had a an agent who's saying, I'm not sure what this is, but it doesn't feel right. And, you know, that might be one person, but there might be five other people who, for whatever reason, have that same gut feeling, but they're tamping it down. They're not they're not feeling like they can ask questions or just that something about, I don't know. I feel like um, it's talked about sometimes, unfortunately with crime, that society tells us that, you know, not helping someone, a stranger on the street is rude, but that also might be a ruse that then can put you in a dangerous place. And just the importance of listening to your gut feeling and not letting outside stressors or ideas kind of, um, kind of color that. So do you have any advice for investigators about how they can train themselves to have more confidence in their instincts and kind of how can they push past the idea of what, oh, well, this question could be considered rude, but it's a question that needs to be asked. Yeah. I, I think, again, I think, you know, listen to your gut, you know, those spidey senses, the hairs in the back of your neck, whatever you want to call it. But I think I trust my intuition, right? And I think most people really do. And especially, I think almost everybody trusts their own personal intuition in a personal setting. And, and because it keeps us, it keeps us and our loved ones safe. It keeps us out of harm way. Like you said, is this a ruse? Is this guy trying to get me closer to his car? Um, and so we had that built into us, right? That, that's something that's innate that's built into us. Now, what happens to us when we go to work? I don't know. For some reason, a lot of people turn it off. I mean, you know, you could have the most intuitive person out, you know, street savvy, um, but they go to work and they just like, they tune it out, they turn it off. And I think the government, you know, sometimes in government, especially in contracting, they, they want you to turn the volume down on that. Plus, in our current society, no one wants to be the outlier, like you mentioned, to have, you know, I'm the only one who feels this way. Um, no one wants to, you know, say their instincts are wrong. Sometimes your instincts may be wrong, you know, but that's okay. Um, but I think, you know, you have to, again, you have to give people space and grace to be able to voice that. And at the same time, you have to know that sometimes it's, you know, it's there to keep you safe. It could be wrong. I mean, maybe there, there was no intention to harm anybody, but it's, you know, you're, you're having these feelings for a reason. Um, and, and I think trying to gain confidence in your own instincts is, is difficult, right? Because we want to test these things like we would, you know, in some other kind of like a data set. Um, I think the best way to kind of gain confidence in those is to kind of follow them and see where it goes. And, you know, am, am I feeling and sensing the same thing others are saying? And I think we need to ask those questions. Hey, did that seem odd to you? Are you okay with this? Did that give you a weird vibe? We have to pose those questions with other people. And I think then we'll learn to trust our instincts more and more. Um, you know, again, 
we as investigators and auditors, we're fact finders, right? So it's not personal for us to perform our work. I mean, we're naturally inquisitive, we're puzzle solvers, but otherwise we wouldn't do this kind of work. I mean, so we're, we're drawn to it for a reason. Um, but I, I totally hear you with the being rude, right? Because like, how do I ask this without it coming across? Like, that's a really insensitive thing to say or a really insensitive thing to ask. Um, I think at the core of it, I think the way I've moved past it and I've you know, held and had people move past it who I've trained is like, we get paid to answer the questions. Like we, we have to, you know, we're, we have to be able to pose these questions to get answers. Um, and sometimes, you know, it, it gets personal. Sometimes we're going to touch on, you know, a sensitive topic or it's going to become personal for the person we're, we're talking to. Um, I think for me, I feel like it comes down to how we preface the question and about being clear about what the intended purpose of what we're asking, right? I'm not asking because I'm being nosy. I'm not asking because I'm going to go blab to the National Enquirer. Um, I'm really asking because I need to know from my, my investigation or my audit. Um, you know, we're not, we're not trying to embarrass you, you know, and I think we can be very upfront, right? This is not to make you feel bad. Um, you know, we want the facts so we can report out our findings because at the end of the day, that's all it really, really what we had to go by is how do I report this out? And so when we ask those tough questions, right, it's, we have to remember it's human nature for people to want to protect themselves, right? To minimize what they did and minimize what their role is in something. So we, again, have to remain objective and not take it personal. Like, oh, this person's lying to me. You know, I got them. I, I look at the evidence. It's overwhelming. I know you did this, but like, I put myself in that person's shoes. Like, how would I feel right here? Like, my first response, my first reaction may be to minimize what I did. And oh no, no, it's all, it's all an error. Um, so we have to make sure we factor that in. Um, and there's a way to do it without being rude. There's a way to do it without you know trying to push buttons or you know try to you know we're, we're not trying to trap you in something. We really need to know, you know. So our job is to, you know, push past those feelings, get to the root of what happened. You know, maybe it was intentional. That speaks to the fraud aspect, right? That's the intent. Maybe it's accidental. Maybe it's systemic flaw. But the best way we're going to get to that is we got to build rapport, right? We have to know who we're talking to, get them at ease. Again, let them understand, like, I'm not asking this because I want to get in your personal business. I'm not trying to ask you about this, this, or this. I really need to know so I can report it out. So again, be as clear as you can. Let's let's take the time we need and get through it. Um, and again, I don't think there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, I'm not trying to be rude, but I really need to know how we got here. Right? I mean, I don't think that's a, I think we can preface it in a certain way where we take people off of the off of the defensive and they understand that we're just trying to gather the facts, right? We're 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 not trying to 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 poke at you or to to shame you. That's, you know, I don't, I don't get bonus points when I'm doing an interview, right? If I, if I get somebody to, you know, to, to say, oh yeah, that was, I, I feel horrible about that. And at the end of the day, like I said, we're just trying to put it all together. That puzzle again, you know, bringing our gaze up and how does this all fit in and putting that puzzle together. Um, and then, you know, report out the fact that I think that's the, that's the best we can do is just uh, is be, be polite about it and go from it. Cause again, end of the day, um, you know, we don't have a dog in the fight. You know, we are fact finders. That's it. It's what we can prove. Yeah. There's there's no bonus for getting extra bad guys or nailing them on something unrelated to the investigation. Right, right. Or, you know, getting somebody to, to cop to something they didn't do or because we got them confused, you know, but but you're right. I mean, it's um, a lot of it goes back to instincts, you know, it's especially like in you're talking about, you know, not being rude and talking to people. A lot of that just goes through talking to so many people in your career and you pick up on those indicators of like, oh, I can't tell you, right? Whether it's a defensive body posture or, or how they're answering questions. A lot of it's just getting to know people, getting to know who we're talking to, you know, really becoming 
a subject matter expert on the matter we're working with. And, and like I said, just laying out the evidence and let them explain it. That's at the end of the day. And if we've done all that, we've collected the evidence, we've laid it out in front of you and you still, you know, can't talk us through it. We gave you the opportunity and, you know, my report will reflect just that. I mean, it's again, not personal, not trying to be rude. Just, I got to report this out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, is there anything else that you want to bring up that we haven't covered any points that you want to talk about? Yeah, I mean, again, I think it goes back to being creative. I mean, obviously, that's probably my buzzword that, you know, professional uh, skepticism um, and creativity. But I I think kind of like I did it and and when I did the ACP presentation, I kind of hop up that soapbox for a minute and, you know, kind of kind of wanted to target my, my talk at managers of people who are managing contracting officers and grant administrators. I think we tend to forget they truly are our front line of defense. Right. They are the centuries of our of our castle. Um, and and they know these projects, you know, our contracting officers, our grant administrators, like they know these projects better than anybody else does because they worked them up. They did the research. They know the vendor. They spoke to the vendors. And so when when something sounds off, like they're going to know um, again, not not always fraud. Right. But something off. And so, you know, we, we need to give them the space and grace to probe a little deeper, you know, get a, get a better explanation from a grantee or a vendor. Um, you know, if some mild questions garners the, the answer we're comfortable with, cool, we can move on, we can move forward. But if those questions, you know, are then answered or leaves us with more questions and additional things we got to follow up on, maybe it's time to dig a little deeper, you know, and, and it kind of goes back to that professional skepticism. We got to use that intuition. We got to use that, like, something's off. I don't know what it is, you know, and sometimes, again, we have to get it outside of our bubble to, to pose that question to somebody else. And, you know, um, I, I would be remiss if I didn't shed light on the managers, the side of this, right? A lot of managers I spoke to who manage contracting officers, grant administrators, they tell me, Vince, that's not my staff's job, right? That their, their job is not to do your job. And I said, no, 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 by no means. Am I asking them to be an auditor or an investigator? Um, you know, I understand their job is to, you know, vet and verify. Um, I disagree a little bit because we all have the fiduciary trust. I see where they're coming from the point, but I guess my counter argument would be, so the 30 minutes you would spend vetting and verifying or talking to me or probing questions is going to save you hours, if not months, you know, of termination conversations, show cause letters, right? Canceling a project, finding a new vendor to pick it up. So I hear what they're saying where that's not their job. They're not Sherlock Holmes, right? But I would say in the big scheme of things, they maybe have to probe in, really probe in on maybe what a handful of things a year. That's not too bad, you know? So I would really, again, encourage them to to you know, managers to, to think about open-mindedly. Um, and again, let us know. Let us know how we can help. We can run it to ground. Um, I think a lot of managers tend to forget that auditors, investigators won't tell their staff what to do next, right? We're not here to tell you how to manage these programs. We're trying to funnel all the information we can to you so you can make the best decision with the information available, right? So we want you to make an educated decision. So, you know, don't turn a blind eye to some of these issues. Like, let us let us help you because we don't want to see you end up in litigation. We don't want to see you end up in the contractor board of contractor appeals, um, you know, those kind of things. So let us help you. And then, you know, it's a, you know, we're, we're here as a tool and resource to help. Um, so hopefully, like I said, hopefully going forward, as like you said, education and outreach, hopefully we can get to that, that level where, where managers don't see us as the enemy. They see us as a tool and resource to be able to use. Yeah. And like you said, I can't think of a better selling point for all of that than the whole idea of, is it an extra 30 minutes now, as opposed to hours and hours down the road, the whole, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure that it's like, 
yeah, it might be a little intimidating right now, but trust me, it's going to be one tenth of the work that you're going to have to do later. So just save that time for yourself right exactly. now. Exactly. And that's been the bulk of the conversations I've had with those CEOs who said, yeah, I wondered about that. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, how's the contract progressing? Actually, it's not. We had to send, you know, two or three show cause letters. We had to, you know, send out cure notices and we're getting ready to terminate. And now it's the end of the fiscal year. And now they're in that time crunch where we don't have the time allotted to be able to reaward this contract. And the next lower, lowest viable bidder is $40,000 more than we wanted to spend. So now we're time, money, right? I mean, it's just, it just really gets bad. I mean, the whole thing really kind of tends to snowball and, and you hate sitting back like, yeah, I really wish you would have called me earlier. I mean, you hate being that way, but like, okay, well, how can I help you now? Like the situation we're in now, like, why are we terminating? You know, what's going on? What was it ultimately led you to think that there's something wrong here? Um, but yeah, that, that ounce of prevention, right? That, that, that a couple probing questions. And, and it goes back to, like I said, people don't want to be rude and they don't want to, they want to ask weird questions, but our staff is seeing these things. I mean, they're seeing it in real time. They're hearing things in real time as, as, as these um, contractors and vendors and grantees are saying it to them and, and they're hearing it going, what? Like you see the big question mark pop above their head. And for some reason, like I said, they want to suppress that. I don't know if we've just beat it out of them as, you know, as the government employees, but we got to bring that back to the forefront and, you know, have a bright idea award or, or something else. It can't all be just quotas and milestones, right? It's, it's, it's really got to be uh, the most bang for the buck. I mean, quality vendors, we want to work with good vendors. We want, and the ones who are authorpus off, we want to make sure that we can, you know, mitigate their role and, and get them out of, uh, out of government contracting or grants. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you again, Vince, for joining us today for this podcast. I feel like we've covered a lot of the bigger themes, not only with fraud investigation, but also just almost life lessons for everyone listening as well. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Again, thanks so much for having me on. And thank you for listening. You can find this podcast along with all other episodes of Fraud Talk on acfe.com, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. This has been Sarah Thompson signing off.